Episode 1, Steve Rude. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creative Credit, a show dedicated to conversations with talent from across the comic book industry, artists, writers, inkers, letterers, colorists, and more. Who knows? Maybe we'll even branch out and speak directly with editors or publishers or producers and writers across comics multimedia. The sky's the limit. Now, I don't want to make this preamble longer than necessary because you're here to kick things off with the dude himself. But since it's the first episode of this new show, I feel some introductions are in order. First off, my name is Chad Bokelman. I live in Austin, Texas, and duh, I'm a comics fan. Now as a kid, I had five single-issue comics, and I read and reread those comics over and over again. However, it wasn't until after high school that I was wandering a bookstore next door to a theater and picked up my first trade paperback. Green Lantern Rebirth, and Volume 2 of the Showcase Presents Black and White reprints of the Silver Age Green Lantern Adventures. Well, one thing led to another, and I found a podcast called The Lantern Cast, then in its infancy. Through my fandom and participation in that show in various ways, I eventually became a co-host. And when the original host decided to move on, they passed the show on to myself and my co-host, Mark Marble. At the time of this recording, Mark and myself have been co-hosting the Lantern Cast together for five years, and the show as a whole has been on the air for over ten years. Which brings us to today. Through that podcast, I've discovered a love of comic book history, and more so, a love of creator interviews. It's one thing to read fantastic published works about the comics industry, such as The Tencent Plague by David Haydu, Leaping Tall Buildings by Christopher Irving, and, well, really anything produced by Tomorrow's Publishing. But it's quite another to hear direct from the sources within this industry. Through the Lantern cast, I've had the opportunity, or rather excuse, to talk to amazing people such as Tom Wynn, Scott Collins, Tony Bedard, Daryl Banks, Ron Mars, Neil Adams... Denny O'Neill, and many, many more. But as wonderful as those conversations have been, I've left many more fantastic people I've met in this industry off mic because they had no affiliation with Green Lantern. So I've started Creative Credit. To answer your question, no. I'm not actually the most qualified individual out there to produce a show like this. And no, I don't know every single aspect about this industry. I haven't read every series recommended to me. I haven't absorbed the sheer breadth of art styles available. My knowledge base is most certainly extremely limited in this regard. But I'll tell you this. I've been podcasting for five full years and associated with one for a decade. I love comics. I love this industry. I love talking to people. And mostly, I love learning about this industry. I'm going to ask questions based on wrong assumptions. I'm going to trip up here and there, but I'm here for the ride, and I hope beyond hopes that you're here to learn with me too. Now this, our first episode, 
features one of my favorite creators, Steve Rude. Though the intent was to have this be a strictly audio-based medium, my conversation with Steve is actually greatly enhanced by a visual component. To that end, please, if you can, visit the LanternCast YouTube channel for the recorded video from our conversation, where Steve displays quite a bit of samples of his work for you to view and enjoy. Or, if you can only listen in for now, seek out the video later to view the work Steve chose to showcase. It's incredible. But, with no further needlessly lengthy personal histories or introductions, I present to you my conversation with Steve the Dude Rude. Alright guys, we are back from break and I have the man, the myth, the dude, the legend, Steve Rude with me. Hey Steve, welcome to the show. Um, well, thank you and, and you're welcome. Um, so uh, a lot of people want to start off when they're speaking with someone about their origins, their where, where they were born, what their childhood was like. But I was reading and listening to a lot of interviews with you and where I want to start actually is 1966 because I hear based on everything I've watched about you, that that is where your sort of origin truly begins in terms of your inspiration and your love of the industry. So how, how did this all start for you in 1966? Well, I was, I was, um, this is, I, I suppose with everyone's life, there has to be a seminal year where there's going to be things that you, you know, once you're born into the world, you're, you're subject to influences with everything that's around you. Uh, back then, the influences were different than they are now. They were none of the things we have now, and I'm kind of glad about that. Um, <laughs> but we had, uh, you know, our black and white TVs back in 1966. Um, the occasional home that did have color was a reason to go over to that kid's house that day or that night so we could see what these shows actually looked like in color. But all, they were all done in color. They all had the foresight to know that there was going to come a day when everything was going to be in color. And it just so happened in the year 1966, a bunch of things came together, as things tend to do. And uh, it was the year of Star Trek. It was the year of uh, Saturday morning cartoons that I relish and worship practically. It made a huge impact on me. And it was also the year that... Uh, um, a little Chinese guy named Bruce Lee came along in a show called The Green Hornet. And what I remember about that show was nobody cared about The Green Hornet. They were always talking about Cato because he was cool and he could kick and he could beat up guys like that. And that was something that Bruce himself uh, made, made clear from the beginning of the show that he wouldn't spend all this time beating guys up when he knew it would take him about literally a second to dispatch these guys. So that was, that was uh, another part of that, that, um, that schedule that um, was taking place during that, uh, during that year in September, which, which is when all the shows debut. So with those being the, the, the beginnings of your passion and your, in your influence, you know, one thing I was noticing when I was going through and researching the, I actually saw a video that was posted over on YouTube. Uh, you just going through your office and flipping through one of your sketchbooks and you were imitating Disney styles and a lot of Jack Kirby, like muscle studies and stuff like that. And a lot of people would say, or, 
casual fans would look at the uh, a grand artist or someone they 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 idolize like yourself or Neil Adams or whatever and they figure they just wake up and do it but it's so cool to me to see that every day every year as you go through this business you're still breaking down and trying to learn um is that something that you picked up just uh going through those influences and seeing how those things that influence you just evolved and steadily grew well i i think i think that the um, the best way to explain uh, the sketchbook, the endless sketchbook studies, is just a compulsion on my part. Um, <clears throat> I actually have the recent sketchbook that I've been working on recently, and uh, <clears throat> I can hold up some of the things here. You can see <clears throat> the kind of things I tend to do. And this is this um, this sketchbook that we're looking at here is, is I, th- I believe is um, is number thirty six. Wow. So. Since the age of 19, when I got my first sketchbook, to uh, and that would have been in 1976 to 2019, this is what I this is what I do uh, for fun. I, I people look at these things and think, geez, you know, you you must be crazy or disciplined or something. Mm-hmm. No, it's neither. I just like doing this. This is how this is what I do for fun. <clears throat> and as I turn the pages here, you can see all these different things. Uh, that take place in these pages here. I'll turn the page, and you can see that basically everything is is game here for me. It's on the top is a is a study of Sargent, on the bottom is a study of some Struzan work. Uh, I turn this around, and there's some um, <clears throat> there's some William Mayer Chase studies. And make sure everyone, everyone can see that okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, just just little things that catch my eye that I I always figured that if I if I copy it, you know, it, it might it might go into my brain, so I can use it for for future things. Um, <clears throat> here's an outdoor study when I was on vacation with Janelle uh, at this beautiful resort. So I get I just brought my sketchbook along and. Uh, and uh, painted it on site. That's, well, that's a, beautiful. It's, p- thank you. Painting on site is a is an important thing that everyone um, who knows about art should uh, should in, engage in. It's, it's it's part of communing with nature, I think. And when you're out there and you're you're seeing with your own two eyes and you're feeling um, the ambiance of the place. Um, it can be it can be a very uh, a very rewarding rewarding thing to to stand outside and just uh, try to copy nature with with paint and pencil. <clears throat> but you can see every little thing that catches my eye is is possible game for <laughs> me drawing it. Yeah, I see some more Disney there. There's a lot of Disney stuff in here. I've been really getting into. Uh, I've been into in the Disney art artists for a long time. They they have the capacity to abbreviate real life into uh, simple cursive lines, and the characters are are just as real as if they were rendered to death photographically. So I knew there was a secret going on there that I wanted to find out for myself. <clears throat> I'm going to turn the the page here and. <clears throat> There's more Disney stuff. There's some stuff from the Supergirl TV show. 
And a lot of these are kind of warm-ups for things that I'm going to be working on that are coming up. Uh, and other things are just are just things that uh, are uh, are good practice. Here, this is this is part of the art of caricature. How do we get someone who w- would never look like this in real life and right. make them look like they're real by extreme exaggeration? Oh, what do we have here? Oh, <laughs> feet and elephants. Oh, wow. So this is all part of the part of what I've done just as a matter of compulsion. I don't know how else to describe it. It's certainly not discipline. You know, discipline is is making yourself do things that you don't really want to do, but you know you should. Mm-hmm. And that, that's never been my thing. I've just been lucky enough to to be so intrigued by studying, learning new things. That's where the fun is. Yeah, a lot of people like to ask, uh, and it's, you know, I've found myself uh, asking a lot of. I've interviewed Neil Adams and and several other uh, people in the industry. They always want to ask, you know, how do, how did you break in? How did you how did you push through those barriers and and uh, just kind of uh, find the passion to keep going in comics despite all these roadblocks that are put in front of you? And a constant theme I'm seeing when I'm listening to uh, other interviewees talk to you is that wasn't really you your your passion about comics just exceeds just through and through it's never been sure there are hard days but it never it never has waned for you you encounter a roadblock and, and you just swerve into the thicket and push harder on the gas rather than letting it stop you and that's something I, that i i don't want to say is unique to you but something that is uh, makes me really feel like I appreciate your artwork even more knowing. And I just wanted to talk a bit about your attitude about the industry and how that has kept you going. Well, my attitude about the industry now is, um, is, is not, is not one of, uh, glowing positive, <clears throat> uh, re, um, evaluation. Uh, to me, Say, for example, I was working for D.C. recently and, and um, there's been so many changes. And the ones that I've noticed is the scheduling. Um, I was offered a chance to work in a book. And because the, the team of editors that I was working with were so late on um, <clears throat> getting a script to me. These writers nowadays, uh, I don't know what's what's happened to the business, but they, this particular writer took several months to get me a script. And that's just not the way I that's not the business I grew up on, especially with Capital or or, or First Comics or Dark Horse. But there there came a time when a, a trend began to take place. And that was um, it's almost like these these. These these guys that are noted as top writers and top artists are getting too big for their britches here, and and the companies are catering to these these um, <clears throat> these whims of theirs, where they can take all the time in the world to put these things out. And again, that's not the world that I grew up on, and I I simply think it's it needs to be reversed. Uh, so that was that was one of the reasons that I encountered kind of a culture shock in working with today's editors is. Uh, where's my script? Where's my script? Well, it's coming, it's coming, but it's, it never seems to come. 
And another thing that really um, I, I find disheartening in the business is um, people don't make phone calls anymore. They don't they don't talk voice to voice. And uh, what I find is everyone uses email to express their thoughts or their opinions or their um, <clears throat> their take on whatever they're getting from their creative partners. I don't believe in that. You know, the more I the more I see all this tech stuff going on in these emails, which I'm all for. I don't text, but I certainly email. <clears throat> it made me want to go back to always making sure I talk to people on the phone rather than uh, email them. So I'm kind of I've kind of kind of always been a rebel as far as what everyone else does that I know is wrong. I'm going to do the opposite. Because it just, it just makes more sense. What makes more sense? An email? Sometimes it does. Other times, it's far better to do a voice-to-voice and just hear uh, the person's voice. Um, there's advantages to both, and you need to use both. Um, so that was one of the things that I, that I encountered, um, is just this, this constant delays in getting scripts to me, uh, which never used to be a problem. So and then again, the prominence of the writer over the artist, which I'm told is something that's that's been taking place for a while. Things change all the time, Chad, yeah. in the world, in the business, um, and nobody ever quite knows has the foresight to see what's going to come next. Um, but when it does come, you have you have to either decide if you're going to put up with it and come and go along with it and cater to it, or say this is no, this is not okay. We've got schedules here. And ironically, um, <clears throat> I've actually gotten quite a bit faster over the years, which I can't really account for. It maybe I'm just working more out of my head, and and um, instead of you know going through the um, the process of you know gathering all this reference, I still gather a lot of reference because <clears throat> when you're on a when you're on Easter Island, you better dig up pictures of Easter Island for crying out loud. Right. Um, but the, a lot of stuff I think I think I finally coalesced in my head to the point where I can <clears throat> the figures and things like that, the gestures and the composition and the spotting of blacks, all vital stuff to being a comic book artist, um, have uh, have kind of come together a lot better over the years. And I, I feel kind of funny being able to do that. Like I should be not doing that. It shouldn't be this easy. But in fact. You have to let go of that kind of nonsense from the past and just say, well, if it's easy right now and I don't th- seem to need anything more than just my imagination for these, these figure inventions, just go with it. Yeah. So One thing, yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry, that's, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's kind of how I see the business nowadays, um, um, having worked directly with um, the, the companies like DC these days is just uh, people don't make schedules anymore. Is do you think another part of it maybe uh, decline? Not necessarily um, it, like it doesn't happen anymore, but do you think part of it is that uh, there's been a decline of the collaborative process between writer and artist? Because you were very fortunate to be a partner in something like this, and do you think that that might play a part of it? That okay, the writer writes the script and and the artist uh, does his thing based on the script, but do you guys don't really communicate as much anymore? You're not in the same room. You're not really partners in this process as much as it used to be. No, I don't. I don't, Chad. This is just uh, a lazy excuse for people to uh, <clears throat> not turn work in on time. You know, people worked the way they did for a century. And they never miss deadlines. So 
anything that people want to um, conjure up as far as why this is taking place, um, it, it rests entirely with the people. It starts at the top. Everything always starts at the top. <clears throat> so if the top people insist on working this way, you know, getting things in on time, then that's the way it's going to be. And the people that can't keep up with it, um, as with many times as decades in the past, are just not going to get the, the kind of work that people that can make deadlines can. The fans want to see this work. I want to see the work coming out, come out at a, at a regular rate. And, um, but you know, when you, when you unleash that plug, Chad, a lot of things happen that, uh, that never used to. You make allowances and all of a sudden everyone's doing it. Mm-hmm. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing, but it's a very human thing to do. I think, I think it kind of ties, went, ties in with, um, uh, would you rather do something the hard way and get more out of it in the long run, or would you rather have short-term satisfaction? Yeah. And um, <clears throat> lack of maturity will give you the answer as to which one they're going to pick from that. You know, I, I had to ask because I figured that was your philosophy on it, but I asked because I, you hear a lot of people talk these days about – the golden age or the glory days of like the Marvel bullpen and everybody being in there in this just sort of hive of creativity and everybody passing around each other's work and sharing each other's ideas. And then that that's what's wrong with the industry now trying to pin it on one thing or another. So I appreciate you kind of, you know, from, from your vantage point in the industry, you know, kind of giving that perspective, because I think there's a lot of explanation and excuses that goes on to explain the sort of behavior that you talk about away. They're all excuses, every yeah. one of them. Yeah. You, you either come through and do it the way that you you believe it should be done, the way it was done, if you think that's best, or you you make allowances and everything just slides down a hill. Yeah. You talk a bit about blazing your own trail, and you do what do do what makes sense to you, and do what works for you. And that I almost feel like there's no better uh, way to empathize emphasize that than saying. Uh, pointing to the Nexus newspaper strip. Uh, I know you were inspired by partly what the, the pitch you got from someone at DC with the, the Wednesday comics, which That's right. I, I find so incredibly awesome. But uh, just seeing the, the value in that and going, wow, that's a great idea. We should do that for Nexus, too. It just seems almost counterintuitive to the digital push that's happening. And, uh, you know, I, I loved it. When you guys said you were doing that and the Kickstarter happened, that was something that I just that blew me away. It wasn't the fact that Nexus is back, although let's face it, that's part of it. Uh, the other the other part is just, oh, wow, we're going to do this newspaper format and he's working full size style. Uh, explain your thought process of not just bringing Nexus back, but but doing that, because I know the collected edition is coming out soon. Yeah, it, it is coming out soon. And uh, how do I explain it? Well. Um, so much of it is just being in touch with with something that's inside oneself, and um, things have things have changed so much since the time that Nexus debuted in 1980, 81. Um, that you have, I, I I don't know how else to explain it except except that um, you you become aware of things. As you as you go out into the real world and go to conventions and and see all this stuff going on and all these there's a thousand more people attending these conventions that that want to uh, get known for what they're doing and um, there came a, there came a time when 
uh, some of the changes that came about, Chad, were uh, there were no more letter pages anymore in comics. So <clears throat> with that gone, how do you how do you know how do you correspond with the people that are receiving your work and want to give their opinions on things? Well, um, <clears throat> by by the um, the two thousands, the letter columns were were obsolete. And uh, we weren't getting hardly any feedback on the work we were. Mike Barron and I were doing at Nexus. Mike Barron being the writer, and I and I just knew uh, I, it probably grew over time as I thought about this that this has to change. So Honda, so if you're gonna if you're gonna do something to wake people up again and, and just kind of uh, get their attention again, you can't do the same thing over and over. And at one point, I was in I was. Uh, probably attending the last San Diego convention that I had done probably 10 years ago. And I was, uh, I was walking around the, the lounge area and I, I happened upon uh, a group of people and there were two major comic book people holding court there while everyone else just sat there kind of dumbly staring. <clears throat> and it was Neil Adams and, and Jim Steranko. And I kind of crashed the table and I said, you know what? I think I have this idea here where I think the future of comics should go. And so Neil Adams and Jim Steranko proceeded to tell me everything that they thought I was going to tell them. But unfortunately, instead of looking into the past, they were looking at the next the next uh, technical gimmickry mm. that would that would change our business in the future. I was looking strictly in the past. And part of the reason for that was the fact that uh, the comic strips that beget comic books uh, were uh, were going the way of the dodo. The only strips that were out there, and remember, these used to be read by everyone in America, adults and kids and everybody around the world. And now nobody pays attention to them anymore, especially the adventure strips. Well, I thought. And this is also due to um, um, having talked with uh, Mark Chiarella from DC, who invented the uh, the Wednesday Comics idea. Well, why can't we just why can't we conform these strip these uh, comic books to the strips again? I mean, nobody's doing it. There's no original strips out there anymore. And I thought, well, there's something, there's something wrong with the fact that nobody's bringing them back. The syndicates don't care one bit about, uh, the, the strips that they've owned for, for decades and decades now. They're not putting any money into them. The people that do actually do them, like the recent updates of Prince Valiant and Phantom and things like that, um, uh, are poorly paid. They're poorly treated. Well, when I hear those things, I know it's time to leap into action. Like someone with a cape would would do. <laughs> so I did, and um, and being one who doesn't believe in the word the word no or can't, I decided that if I had the right backing, I would start doing Nexus as a comic strip. <clears throat> and in fact, I didn't have any backing, so the only alternative at that point, Chad, was to do it myself. So I, and that's that's really. Um, when you when you make a decision like that, you're looking at money, uh, not someone else's money, but your own money. Mm-hmm. And this hardly isn't hardly the first time I've I've had to uh, put my so-called money where my ideas are, uh, and that's fine with me. At least I tried. And I'm always thinking back to that line from 
the movie One Flew with a Cuckoo's Nest, where all these uh, these crazy guys were kind of standing around this this bathroom area where they had a water fountain, <clears throat> and um, something came up where um, <clears throat> they all decided that if they, if they could move this water fountain, this 400 pound water fountain, the things would change in their life. But nobody was willing to try it. So Jack Nicholson being the new guy there and having no idea of, of the, the can and camps of the, of the situation he was thrown into, decided to move it. He couldn't move it. He tried and tried, tried. And they all started laughing at him. At the end of the scene, he looks at all of them, winded, and said, at least I tried. That's what I want on my tombstone. I, if I believe in something, I'm going to try it. And um, I, I just don't believe anybody who thinks like me shouldn't do the same thing. Maybe not as maybe not as maybe not taking it as far as I take it sometimes, because a lot of times you're looking at. Uh, you can't even afford house payments anymore. So I don't recommend it for everyone, just this crazy types, the obsessive types, the people that, that know that if they don't try it, then all is lost. But at least something is gained if somebody tries it. And ideas beget ideas. Yeah. That's something, the, the, at least I tried mentality is something that uh, you can kind of see. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask you questions. A lot of artists will come to you and ask for advice and how to push into the career. And you say, you know, just uh, just uh, perseverance, you know, push push through and, and, and remain dedicated. To, to what you're doing and make it make it your thing. I saw a video of, of, of one guy saying, you know, I've got kids, I've got a wife, I've got the full time job and I, this is my passion. This is what I want to do. And you said, you know, hey, <laughs> kudos to you for for for, you know, trying as hard as you are. But you got to You got to change your thinking and, and, and tell your family this is my thing. This is what I'm going to go go for. And uh, I love that advice, but a, a wrinkle I want to add to it is what you said earlier about the way the industry is, the schedule, the the, the, the the lack of a schedule, and the frustrations that are in the industry now. Different frustrations than what was what came before it, but frustrations nonetheless. How do you how do you advise people pushing forward in the industry and making this their one thing, despite all those frustrations that keep pushing back at them? Well, it's it's actually pretty simple, Chad. I try to break down, make everything down in my life to very simple terms because if they're not simple, that means they're complex, and people don't want to hear complex solutions to problems. Um, I have two idols in life. One is Bruce Lee, and the other is Captain Kirk. The third one is Jack Kirby. These were guys that no matter what happened in their lifetime, they would persevere and carry on until they got what they wanted. And when they got what they wanted, they could tell everyone, I told you so. Um, I love to be in a position where I would say to people, I told you so. But it, like I said, it's, it, this kind of attitude is not for everyone. You have to be you have to have something almost volcanic or erupting within you to take chances like this. If it's not if it's not sincere, and if it's not genuine, you're probably better off not doing it. So you have to have a very specific personality type to take risks like this <clears throat> where you're going to spend 70000 to to $100,000 of your own money pursuing something that is um, you have to do it no matter what. That's not a common attitude among most people. 
It's not. It's not. Um, I would I would say, you know, it, a lot of people are, are doing are, are of the mindset of take whatever work they can um, and find. And, you know, if even if I'm not passionate about it, it doesn't matter. At least my name's in print and my people and people can see either my art or the scripts I'm producing, the stories I'm telling. But it seems like your your path while you took some of the jobs that you needed or whatever, you know, when you when you this is a very rare path. Nexus, of course, coming out of the gates with something that ended up being as popular as it did with you and Mike Barron. But at the same time, it's so distinctly yours as opposed to uh, a property owned by someone else, dictated by someone else. Um, I want I wanted to know a bit about your per- particular path to this, because it, it just seems like a, a almost even though I'm not a writer or an artist, it almost seems counterintuitive to go, okay, uh, the comics are big, the superheroes are big, I'm going to do this thing and work for DC or work for Marvel. And instead you went and said, no, there's promise in this, I'm going to do this. What was that like? Well, at the, at the time, Chad, um, I was trying to get work from <laughs> Marvel and DC. Uh, the years before Nexus took place, which was um, just a very fortuitous fluke in itself, I, was, I would uh, spend every cent I had to get up to New York. And at first, I took a train, and then and then the year after that, once I got rejected from those those places, I would take a plane, and um, and I would just keep going back. And my 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 idea was to get as much feedback from these 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 great talents that ran these companies as much as possible. That's what I that's what I went there to find out. If I couldn't get work, I was at least going to not walk away without finding out what I needed to work on. And when you, as you know, whenever you ask somebody a question, even if they're 12 years old, uh, they will give you an opinion on what what they think about something. Um, <clears throat> I was always more interested in gut reaction than than people that overthought their appraisal of what I had done. Even to this day, I said, never mind the never mind the college. Uh, you know, paper version here. Just tell, give me your gut reaction because that's what I, that's what means the most to me. If they, if they, if they see it and like it in their gut, then, then I've done my job just right. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, uh, I would go up there and I would, <laughs> I would talk to everyone I could, you know, when, um, when the editors, the editor in chief or whatever would kick me out of his office, I would go down the hall and, uh, just kind of walk in the rooms where people were working and strike up conversations with them. I mean, to me, that was fun. I wanted to know uh, how they got these jobs. I mean, they were working at these great comic companies and I wasn't. I wanted to find out more about them. Uh, and that was that was so rewarding. They would they would sit there and just they would be inking away in a cover or they they'd be drawing something or they'd be pacing up something. And I just. <laughs> That was so fascinating to me, and I just loved to, to, just to sit sit there and just uh, uh, pick their brain about uh, whatever they were thinking about. Um, that was fascinating to me. They had things that I didn't have, and I wanted to have those myself. So I would just my idea was, you know, just common sense. If I kept coming back, I might get something. And in fact, I never did get anything. But in the meantime. Uh, this anomaly called Nexus came along. And again, I've always noticed that 
the biggest changes in, in things tend to happen at the beginning of a new decade. New singers, new musicians, new actors, new movies, new trends. And in the case of Nexus, apparently the time had come for independent guys working in the middle of the, the States to take their shot at publishing comic books. And I was lucky enough to be part of that. Yeah, Nexus uh, Nexus is is a good almost a good example of your sketchbooks. You turn the page and there's some other influence there. You because you see you see people try to encapsulate Nexus by saying it's adventure or it's sci-fi or it's pulpy or it's uh, this 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 dark man haunted by these dreams or or trying to find all these these influence and it's so it's so in the in the most beautiful way it's so piecemeal. And a, a name that keeps coming up with regards to the pulp side of things when watching interviews with you is someone, someone I want to know a bit more about because I pulled up some of his, his, uh, work today and I, I just, I didn't know enough and I want to know more. So even though this is about me interviewing you, I want to hear a bit about this guy. Uh, Owen Campen was mm-hmm. a big influence for you and a, and a big influence in your life and, uh, uh, he, she just, I, I look at his work and I see a lot of you in that. And a lot of where you drew that inspiration. And I can't talk to the man, but I can talk to you. And I'd like to learn more about it. I'm, I'm surprised by that answer. I was expecting to hear Roy Crane or Toth or Kirby or something like that. And <laughs> you, you bring up my my first grade teacher. Well, in fact, if I set the stage right, um, Chad, I had uh, at the age of 19, uh, I enrolled myself in art school. Now, that being the logical thing to do. And I got in. It was a four-year college. We paid uh, $850 a semester. And we were always, always complaining about how expensive that was. Um, I lasted two years at that college, got fed up with what I wasn't learning. And I don't think anyone was going to give me a scholarship. So I left. I left. And um, I thought, well, where am I going to go now? I was living about uh, you know, two hours out of, out of Madison, where I was born, in, in Milwaukee. And uh, I said, well, I think it's time for me to, to fly the coop for good. So that was the year that I moved permanently out of the house. Uh, no more relying on anything from mom and dad. And moved on, moved back to my hometown. I had a lot of friends that were still there. And it was time to find out what I was really made of. Eventually, after a couple of years of just, um, you know, living on campus and trying to get a, you know, I had jobs, but <laughs> they normally involved <clears throat> washing a lot of dishes. <laughs> um, I, remember, I think one of the first jobs I got was uh, working at the IRS. And I was someone who was hired uh, to take one box of somebody's tax records to another part of the building. And that's what we did to make room for new, new people that were having their, <clears throat> their, their tax boxes, um, um, brought into the, <clears throat> brought into that, that system. Well, they caught me looking at my own box one day. I thought, well, it's my box. I should be able to look at it. Well, the old battle axe that worked there caught me doing that. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they do what they do to, they always do to people like me, upstarts. They, they tell me they're going to fire me and I shouldn't be doing that. I said, no, I'm going to keep doing it. And <clears throat> so the day they fired me, we actually had a party. And I was invited. And we had a great time. I probably got to know those guys 
<laughs> better at that at that going away party for Steve Rude than than I ever got to know them in the six months I was there before that. But it was a uh, you know these goofy things that happened to me because I I just I can't stand people telling me what to do or how to how to live my life and and if I know right from wrong and they're telling me something that I know is is not wrong I'm going to keep doing it and I've been like that my whole life and uh, boy it's gotten as I tell the kids it's gotten daddy into a lot of trouble sometimes <clears throat> but there's no other way for me to live Chad than, than being like that um, I kind of consider my someone consider myself someone who for everyone else who's too timid to take chances and um, blow blow apart the status quo, look at the way I live my life, and if you admire the way I, I conduct myself, then uh, then look at that as a as a pointing finger to something that's possible for everyone. If they don't like being where they're at, you want to change it. You know, in those few years that I was I was messing around as a student as not as a non student in Madison, just kind of finding out what I, what I was all about. I enrolled in uh, uh, Madison Area Technical College. It wasn't an art school or a, a liberal arts college. It wasn't the University of Wisconsin. It was a technical school, and that's where I met this this old, older guy in his 60s, which ironically is the same age uh, that I am now when I met Mr. Campton, which is 62. Actually, he might have even died at 62, but I'm not sure. I met Mr. Campton, and... Um, the first class I took from him was filmmaking. Mr. Campen, um, like a lot of teachers in technical colleges, teach, teach multiple classes. And Mr. Campen was somebody that taught um, figure drawing, painting, and filmmaking. Well, I love the idea of being able to grab a camera and seeing what I could capture in film. Uh, I liked it as much as the idea of drawing, being able to draw comic books, or being an, illust being an illustrator. So he was the guy that I went to for everything, and we 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 butted heads originally. <clears throat> One of the things I did, me being me, was uh, <clears throat> we were all asked to make a student film, and I made that film. Uh, but instead of just you know confining myself to the the class itself and showing it to the class with Mr. Campen watching, I invited the whole damn school to come in and watch the film with us. <clears throat> Campen found out about that and and got mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew it would blow over because he, he had never met anyone like me <laughs> that was willing to take these kind of screwy chances. Later on, he apologized, of course. And, and that's when we finally broke the ice and got to know each other. <clears throat> and from then on, he um, he considered me one of his um, – well, here's how the story goes. He uh, invited me in, into his office one day, and he says, uh, Steve, I've been teaching for 19 years. And in that time, I've only had a, a small group of students. I called them, <clears throat> I called them my 12. But until now, I've never met the 12th. And when he told me I was going to be added to that roster, I, um, you know, one thing that went through my head was, how does he know this? I'm, I'm 24 years old. How does he know that I'm going to make something of myself? What does he have that I, that I can't possibly uh, perceive? And, uh, you know, of course, later on, when you, as the, as the years and decades go by, Chad, you begin to understand how we can make, uh, assertions like that. And so, and I'm very, I was always very flattered by that. I, you know, to my relationship with Camp was always going to him with questions. 
And while everyone else has sat there and did their work and never came into his office and talked to him, that was nothing of what I was all about. I would I was there every day asking him questions. And, of course, that's what teachers want. They want teach students to ask questions. And I was the guy. I was the question guy. I would practically run down the hall at some point and say, Mr. Camp and Mr. Camp. And I'd see him walking out of his office. I said, why is why is the sky blue? <laughs> why is the sun yellow? <clears throat> and so that was kind of kind of the way we interacted with each other up until the time that he um, that he uh, passed on early in his early 60s. But Mr. Campton was the first guy to teach me the fundamentals, the real fundamentals of art. And remember, this was after two years of an actual art college where the teachers were fairly, fairly inept. I think anyone who's ever been to an art college uh, knows the story of how inept a lot of these teachers are. Um, life, life, I base my life on on, uh, on individual perception. Uh, Marvel may be staffed by hundreds of people, or DC may be staffed by hundreds of people, or AT&T, or uh, all these, these giant organizations. But when it comes to evaluating people on a one-on-one basis, it's all about person-to-person. And I, that's one of the ways, one of the ways I conduct my life is, is to make sure that I get to know individuals. You know, if they want to adopt this kind of <clears throat> disguise of, well, I'm a company man, I try to move beyond that and find out what they're really all about. Do they really like the policies that they're working under? Do they agree with everything? <clears throat> what would they change if they could? Those are the things that I want to find out about the people that I talk to in life. And it goes on and on to this day. And that's, that's where I find out what people are really all about and what they're like, uh, kind of within themselves. That's the part that I want to get to know of, of, of people. And I'm an individual. I have no, uh, <clears throat> the only people that I have any allegiance to are people that have earned it. Uh, probably the most prominent being Mike Richardson from Dark Horse. He's just a wonderful guy. He always keeps his word. <clears throat> and he truly wants to engender a really good working relationship with the people he, uh, <clears throat> he hires. He started Dark Horse for a reason. He, he had his, he had his ideals of how he wanted to conduct himself and his company. And he continues to do that to this day. <clears throat> and that's where I'm, I find myself uh, allowing the, the most creative part of me to come out is working for a guy like that. DC has way too many damn rules going on. I don't agree with half of them. <clears throat> and I found myself being suffocated by him at some point. And I had to get out no matter how much money they were going to offer me. And it was a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, what you said about uh, the individual, the personality, that that struck home with me. I found myself not not on the verge of crying, but tearing up a little bit because I've, you know, I was without a job for six months personally. And it gave me time to it was for the first time in my life I, I decided to take unemployment. Just because I didn't, I was always a person who didn't want to live off the government, blah blah blah. But I was like, you know what? I'm I'm 30s. I'm in my 30s now. It's it's time to buckle down. I need to find a career, not just my next paycheck. So getting into uh, finding more about the company, what they stand for, what their ideals are, it played so much more of a role than I could have ever thought it would than just the paycheck. Just changing my focus for that one moment, and I found that just has cascaded into my outlook on everything else so to learn that you think like that and that uh that's led you to where you are in your life that uh, that's very encouraging to a young person like me i really appreciate hearing that about you well good i tend to i i find myself through feedback t- 
pretending to say the things that no one else does. And that's wrong. Everyone should know these things about life. Life is filled with, with unimaginable uh, hardships and barriers. Every mortal person that comes into this world is going to encounter them. Some are going to test you to limits that you didn't even know was possible. Um, <clears throat> there's great moments. There's, there's very trying moments. And everyone goes through them. And the more we start to discuss these things among ourselves instead of being isolated from them, <clears throat> the better off everybody's going to be mental health-wise. For sure. I appreciate hearing that. And in that aspect, uh, your respect for for uh, everybody you've worked with, especially the Dark Horse team and everything, makes me wonder about one of the things I wanted to ask you about your working relationship with Mike Barron. You worked with him for so long on so many things, continuing on and on and on. Uh, one can only imagine the sort of relationship you guys have. Um, how much how much did did your um, work on Nexus how much did he ask you for ideas of plot or, you know, you came to him for ideas on art and it became such a collaborative process? How did, how did that go for you guys? By the time I met Mike Barron in 1978, he was bursting with ideas because he was working at one of these rank and file uh, <clears throat> insurance jobs. And you can imagine how how much a guy with ex- exploding creative ideas, uh, what kind of a job that did to his soul. These are soul-killing jobs. And when Barron met me, this, this guy about eight years younger than him, who was dead set in doing comic books for a living, we somehow got together. And I, I've always, I've always recommended and told people that if you want to, if you want something, you have to do the equivalent of standing in the middle of the road at, at the road most opportune for the job that you're looking for. Wave your hands and make people stop and, and take notice. And that's kind of what I've, been, what I've been doing my whole life. So in those early days, I would walk around every outlet I could find that would maybe take my work uh, in comic books. Maybe they needed a comic strip in their, in their local newspaper. <clears throat> so I would approach these people, and eventually that's how I got to know Baron. That's how I got to know about him. They, would, they said, well, you know, we can't do anything for you here for you, Steve, but there's this guy named Mike Barron. You might want to hook up with him. And that's how these things tend to happen. <clears throat> but you have to be actively looking for them. You can't just sit in your home and, and uh, eat Krispy creams and uh, watch Friends for a living. You've got to go out there and, and make it happen. Yeah, that's that, that, uh, that relationship that you guys had uh, on that really shows through in your work. And I wanted to ask that because I, I had to know uh, if, if it because it came through on the page. I had to know what it was like in reality. Um, I try to I try to keep these things a little short. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I did have one selfish question I wanted to ask you. Um, my uh, when I started uh, reading comics, I had five issues, five single issues as a kid. And it was only later that I actually got into the industry. I just kept rereading these five issues I just had sitting on my bookshelf. And one of them was Magnus the Robot Fighter and Nexus the crossover issue two. It didn't it was it was a decade or more later that I got issue one. <laughs> but I reread the crap out of that book. And I got I gotta ask about that crossover because Magnus seems like a, a slam dunk for you. Something that, that you that you would love and then be influenced by. So uh, I, I just gotta ask about that crossover because it played such a big part in me wanting to to move forward and learn more about this industry. And one of the memories I have as a kid, and this is even before the year 1966, barely was reading Magnus Robot Fighter comic books. And the thing I remember about that book 
was that it appeared to be real to me. The stories were so well done. The artwork was so compelling that what I read went beyond just opening and turning pages of a magazine. It felt real to me. It still feels real to me when I go back and look at those things. So having that kind of influence of something that stood out as being more than just something you read and forgot about, this, this, th things like Magnus stayed with me my whole life. <clears throat> and when I got, when I finally got to the point, Chad, where I, I could be part of the industry, those were the things that through my work I was going to try to contribute to is when you read the book, it made you, with my art in it, it made you feel like the story was real. Because I think if you just if you just want to do stories that have an empty sense of passing to them, you're affecting no one in a way that you could if you had the will to go beyond that. So Magnus, Magnus was actually plotted by me. I thought of this, this uh, villain named uh, Archon. And I... I have no idea where that came from. None. Where did that name come from? Why, when I was just sitting down and writing this, this plot out, this two-page plot to give the Baron, did I come up with the name Archon? And months later, I, uh, I looked in a dictionary and it says something about some kind of a uh, religious figure that came down to uh, benefit the world of some kind. Well, that's exactly what he was. Now, that's absolutely unaccountable. And it wasn't coming from something deep within my subconscious. It came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then later on, I thought, well, there was a Star Trek episode, Return of the Archons. And this all kind of came together in this bizarre, almost preternatural kind of a way that nobody can account for. This kind of stuff happens all the time with creative people. <clears throat> it's happened to me in my entire life. But <clears throat> Baron, you know, Baron, I don't think he was so much... Baron and I have very different influences. So we're, we're very much like that Gilbert and Sullivan thing where people are just, the two partners are just worlds apart as far as how they think and, and what they do and how they grew up. Um, and who can, who can explain these things when two people that are so disparate come together and they form, form this seemingly perfect union? This, um, this uninterrupted, smooth, um, meeting of the minds that where everything seems to be done of one mind instead of two. <clears throat> so that's, that's always been the, the situation with me and Mike Barron, but he, um, he created Nexus. Mike thought of all these things about the, um, the storyline and, and Ilum and, and, uh, <clears throat> everything. And I just, I just was drawing the strip. I was, <clears throat> I had a chance to put my imprint on it, you know, in the way that all my influences would come out as well as his own when he was writing it. So <clears throat> these two things came together. And out came Nexus. Yeah, that world is just uh, incredible to me. Uh, the the Merc was was one of my favorite characters for some reason. I couldn't I could never explain why, but uh, I yeah I just uh, I had to gush for a little bit about the, that Magnus Nexus crossover. Uh, Archon was a was a great villain. Uh, and I, I, I kept I found myself because because that was my first experience with Nexus. I found myself later when I was buying these Omnibuy. Just going back and like, was was he a villain from before? Where did he come from? <laughs> so it's uh, it's nice knowing his origin. <laughs> well, I tell you, the, the things that you're describing are precisely the things that every fan uh, before you and before me have become fans for. We 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 see these things as we're as we're at some point in our lives. They they uh, they're beyond the norm. 
we get attached to them because they're because they entertain us in in, in massively important ways. <clears throat> they inf- they uh, they influence our thinking, and that influences the, the decisions that we make in our own lives creatively. And the fact that you were out of work for a long time, like a lot of people have endured, and had a chance to really think about your life and evaluate what what are what do I really want to do, uh, and if I can dream it. Can I do it? And I, I think that's if I had to give any kind of any kind of a influence somebody's thinking about how they should conduct their lives. That's number one. Um, I always think of life in terms of what they say when you're in an airplane. When uh, in the case of an oxygen mask coming down, even if you've got a little baby next to you, put it on yourself first, because without being able to put it on yourself and help yourself, you're in no position to help others in a way that um, uh, truly might make a difference in their life. You've got to cultivate yourself and then whatever is left over that you might be able to give the others, uh, assuming that they want to hear what you might have to say about things will have a a greater impact. If you yourself have walked that path yourself and not just talk the talk. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, that's uh, as, as beautiful a note as any to end on. But I wanted to give you uh, one last uh, one last thank you. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, promote anything you've got coming up, because uh, in this uh, comic book creator, Steve Rude book that I've been reading, I saw this beautiful ad for the layout that's coming up with the collected edition of the Nexus strip. And I'm very much looking forward to that. And I just want to hear about this and uh, what you got else coming down the pipeline. That people should look for. Well, uh, what you're talking about, Chad, is is a compilation of the original Rude Dude run of the Nexus comic strip um, that is now going to be republished in its entirety. Since we ran out of money at about issue seven or so with the newspaper strip with Dark Horse, and uh, one of the things I brought along was uh, I wanted to show, I wanted to show people the size of the originals that I work on for this upcoming. Nexus newspaper strip. And if I can reach over here for a second, this is the size of a Sunday newspaper strip from 1950, Mm -hmm. just before Christmas this came out. And this, of course, is is, uh, a sample page from the Prince Valiant strip, probably the greatest single adventure strip ever done. And here is a... uh, is a sample page from the, the upcoming Nexus strips of that far away. So you can see that you can yeah. see identically sized. The actual originals are precisely the size of the Sunday comic strip that was so prominent in America and around the world for so many years. And that has now been left to basically just uh, die a death that it's not worthy of. But this is the size of the originals. And everything is hand done. There's nothing digital going on here, on here except for the coloring. <clears throat> the drawing is done with a pencil. The inking is done with a, with a brush. And the lettering is done by hand. And that's the way I want to continue the rest of my life is uh, making sure that uh, the things from the past <clears throat> aren't, uh, aren't things that should be overlooked just because they're in the past. They have as much validity as they ever had. But when new trends come along, everyone tends to jump on them. I'm not a trend guy. I love my traditional tools. and That's the way I'm going to continue to do my work 
in the comic book field that I love so much, and now the comic strip field. Will that collected edition be uh, a larger size format, or will it be more condensed trade paperback size? <laughs> It'll be kind of like the size of a lot of the IDW original art editions that you've seen come out that you pay this massive amount of money for. Hopefully Nexus will be a lot less cost-wise than that. But I think I think the actual actual size of the strips um, in printed form is going to be 11 by 17. Wow. So it'll yeah. be oversized, but bigger than comic book size and smaller than my my 14 by 19 originals right. that I actually do them on. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's wonderful. Do you have anything else coming out? Uh, I mean, I know that uh, I, I heard rumblings that the moth might be coming back at some point, but that could just be rumor out there. Well, I'm glad you're remembering things that I was going to forget to bring up. Uh, <laughs> for, this is finally my chance to give the moth what I call his due in a part of the part of the upcoming strips that we're going to be doing will be uh, Nexus shared by the moth. <clears throat> so uh, not in this upcoming oversized edition of comic strips that features exclu- exclusively Nexus. <clears throat> the next one that comes out, which we've already gotten on this, which we've already gotten scheduled is going to contain all new Nexus and all new moth material. And I'm just super excited about um, these two, these two things that I, I believe in so much. Yes, yeah, to do. It sounds it sounds wonderful. I can't wait to have that collected edition in my hands, and then the subsequent one with the moth. Um, I in this day and age, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. I know you you guys hold pretty tightly on the Nexus. You tried the animation. You're doing the the strips. Will we ever see a Nexus film someday? Well, um, there's there's two divisions on that. One is Mike Richardson's thought, and he wants. Since he's tied into the feature film business, he's always wanted to make a Nexus movie. Um, I care far more about my Nexus animated cartoon show, which I continue to work on almost daily when I take breaks in between the projects that I'm supposed to be working on. I go over to uh, the animation board that uh, Doug Wiley, the creator of Johnny Quest, had bequeathed me. Then I I draw up ideas, storyboards, layouts for the eventuality of what I I believe in more than anything on this earth and will contribute more to world peace and happiness than anything else I'll, I'll be responsible for. And that is a Nexus animated cartoon show. So I continue to work on that and, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to work until my dying day until uh, I eventually succeed. Yeah. I saw those two minutes that were posted over to YouTube and uh, I was very excited when I saw it. Someone just randomly linked it to me one day knowing I was a Nexus fan. Is it, Hey, have you seen this? And I was like, wait, this is real. This is a thing. Has it been previewed? Is Cartoon Network going to be showing it? Like, what is this? So I can't wait for that to become a reality for you guys. Well, thank you. I, I should probably end on a, on a fairly philosophical note that I, that I, I learned to uh, believe in over the years. And I think as an artist, I think there's two factions that uh, we do this work for. One, we do it for ourselves, of course. <clears throat> and the second is the fan reaction. And it's, it's very much intricately linked in un, unseparated uh, symbiotic relationship with what the artist does and how the fans react to it. And how the fans react is going to kind of get into this perpetual rerun of a kid grows up loving something. 
he eventually has to grow up and decide what he wants to do with his life. <clears throat> I decided I wanted to do comic books and be an illustrator. <clears throat> so all the stuff that I grew up on influenced everything that I now do. <clears throat> so for all the fans that may be watching this, um, that may see my viewpoints is a little, a little uh, atypical for most people out there. And uh, if it gets them thinking about their own lives and what they would like to see coming up and how they spend the rest of their life, hopefully doing something of benefit to themselves, uh, then that's that's a great motivator for me. And I think that's one of the purposes of uh, as you age, you need to speak your mind to people who are just coming up in, in the hopes that what you can help them do with their own life is what you eventually ended up doing with your own life, which is finding your own path and then going and then doing it. Sounds good. I wanted to thank you, Steve, for taking the time out to to come on the show and, and talk about your work in the industry and letting me geek out with you. That was a lot of fun as well. Uh, I say a lot to a lot of people that I interview. I say thank you for their time, uh, not only for uh, the show, but also for the people listening or watching. And uh, I also say thank you for the, your influence in the industry on behalf of the comics fans. But for me personally, I rarely get to say this. Thank you for your influence on me with that first one, that second, that second issue of that Magnus, the robot fighter Nexus crossover. That was one of my very, very first introductions to comics. And I look around my room here and I've got original art and stuff up on the wall and trade paperbacks and books about comics history on these shelves. And I just, uh, I can't help but say it goes back to those five issues that I read as a kid, one of which is you. So thank you so much for your influence and thank you so much for, for your impact on the industry. Well, it makes me know that I'm doing things the right way. So thank you. All righty. You have a great one, Steve. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, Chad. Bye-bye. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Steve Rude. I've got no commentary or clarifying statements to make following that conversation. Steve sort of said it all. Rarely am I nervous to speak with a comic creator. Steve was the exception. But as you can tell, his penchant for being straightforward really helped set me at ease. I want to thank Steve one more time for agreeing to come on the show. I was, and still am, extremely excited that I got to launch Episode 1 with such a huge name. Not just in the industry, but also in my personal fandom. I also want to thank Steve's wife, Janelle. She was extremely patient and kind during the process of getting this all set up and could not have been more accommodating. So what's next? Well, creative credit will continue, but let's set expectations. It will not be a weekly show. It will not be a bi-weekly show. As of this moment, I am aiming for a monthly show. I hope to be able to do this more frequently and with some more regularity as we go, but I still plan to continue working alongside Mark to produce the Lantern Cast. Also, I have a regular job to consider, and yes, I do have a life outside of the office and off mic to cultivate and grow in. But mostly, this show is fun for me. If I push too hard, too fast, I'm going to become overstressed and not look forward to it, which is the last thing I want to do. It will also rely heavily, of course, on the schedule of those I invite on the show. I have a wealth of ideas and people on my bucket list, but getting them requires scheduling, and sometimes those schedules may not mesh for a while. Who's on the list? 
Well, I guess there's no harm in sharing a wish list. I would love to have people like Gail Simone, Jerry Ordway, Alan Bellman, Karen Berger, Cullen Bunn, Nicholas Scott, Sean Gordon Murphy, J. Michael Straczynski, Louise Simonson, and, well, the list goes on and on and on. I cannot wait to see what amazing conversations this show will spawn. Next month, we'll feature an amazing conversation with creator Kwanzaa Asajifo, creator of the comic universe Black, as published by Black Mask Comics. No stone is left unturned, and we have an honest and frank conversation about, well, just wait and see. If you'd like to contact the show, you can follow it on Twitter at creativecredit underscore. You can also send an email to lanterncast at gmail.com and make sure to mention creative credit in the subject line. I do plan on reading Twitter and email feedback from listeners moving forward on the show, so please do not hesitate to reach out and let yourself be heard. Until next time, remember, Marvel or DC, television or film, print or digital, we're all comic fans. And as Robert Downey Jr. once said, a hero is not a noun, it's a verb. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Creative Credit do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Creative Credit is not affiliated with any comic industry publisher unless otherwise mentioned. Music for the show was produced by the Bad Mamma Jammas from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, found at Bad Mamma Jammas on Facebook.